Hello and welcome to Making Media Now, a filmmaker's collaborative podcast. I'm your host, Michael Azevedo. Joining me on this episode is filmmaker Jennifer Maitarina Taylor, the director of a documentary called For the Love of Rutland, which takes viewers to scenic New England, where a battle rages over refugee resettlement. As passions heat up nationally over race, economics, and immigration in 2016, the film captures the fallout in the blue-collar town of Rutland, Vermont, where residents grapple with the resettlement of Syrian refugees while facing the devastation of a stagnating local economy and a growing opioid crisis. An intimate verite-style documentary, For the Love of Rutland, explores issues affecting communities across the nation in the microcosm of one small Vermont town. Here's the trailer. Rutland, Vermont, a blue-collar city fighting hard against the opioid crisis. Eight of these ten people I know. I didn't think I'd make it to 30. (laughs) I didn't think I'd make it to 20. And now a new battle erupts when the city decides to welcome Syrian refugees. We've been told, oh, they're nice families. Nobody knows who they are. I am not against the little drowning children in the river, but do we really want them to be heroin addicts next week? You ain't got no right to tell people that are coming from a war-torn country that they ain't got a right to be here. People don't want change, and they are very protective and territorial of what they've brought here and how long they've been here. Can this community find ways to bridge the divides? I couldn't imagine packing up my family and leaving just to try to stay alive. For the Love of Rutland, a special edition of America Reframed with Vermont Public Media's Made Here. A filmmaker of Mexican and Anglo descent, Taylor, whose credits include New Muslim Cool and Paulina, moved to Rutland from Southern California as an elementary school student. She drew on her own perspectives as a one-time newcomer in making this film about people who are considered outsiders. Making Media Now is sponsored by Filmmakers Collaborative, a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting media makers from across the creative spectrum, from providing fiscal sponsorship to presenting an array of informative and educational programs. Filmmakers Collaborative supports creatives at every step in their journey. To learn more, visit filmmakerscollab.org. And if you're enjoying this podcast, please subscribe, leave a review, and share. And now on to my conversation with Jennifer Maitarina Taylor. Welcome to Making Media Now, Jennifer Maitarina Taylor. You are the director, among other things, director, producer, camera person, and a sound engineer for on a, on a documentary film called For the Love of Rutland. And the Rutland in question is Rutland, Vermont. So, Jennifer, welcome. And first off, I just want to ask you to... Um, provide our listeners with a synopsis of the film. It's great to talk to you. I really appreciate it. And yeah, For the Love of Rutland is a primarily verite film that traces about three years in the life of the small blue collar town of Rutland, Vermont. Um, And the the kickoff of the story is that the town's mayor, mayor, 
um, has decided that the town will start resettling Syrian refugees, partly as a humanitarian gesture and partly as a way to revivify the town, which has been really struggling with the opioid epidemic and um, income disparities. And so the film follows what happens in the wake of that um, decision. And when the film begins, uh, it is uh, uh, around the summer of 2016, correct? That's right. Yeah. Yeah. We started filming in June of 2016. And you have a very uh, personal connection to Rutland also. I do. I do. Um, my family is originally from Los Angeles, and uh, we have very, very deep roots um, on the West Coast, particularly on my dad's side, as part of his family is actually from Mexico. Um, but in when I was in elementary school back in the 70s, my parents decided to move across the country to New England and they chose Rutland. Um, so I lived there for a good part of my uh, childhood. What prompted them to make such a not just a, a, a big move in terms of geography, but also I would imagine in terms of culture? Um, you know, I think a lot of it had to do with um, my dad being very curious about the East Coast. He'd never, I think, even been there. Um, and my mother had gone to college back east. Um, so I think she'd had some experience um, on the East Coast. I think they were just looking for something different. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it was very much the time when people are going back to the land. And, um, you know, L.A. was going through some rough period, uh, a rough time, you know, after the Manson murders, um, some of the stuff that Joan Didion writes about, um, I think were very palpable. Uh, I was a kid, but I, I remember um, people just, you know, feeling, I think, kind of disillusioned, particularly um, as the Vietnam War wouldn't stop. How many years of your childhood were spent in Rutland? A lot. Um, I think we moved there. I was um, seven. And, um, you know, I lived there until I finished uh, high school, Rutland, and then the, the a farming town outside of Rutland called Clarendon. Mm -hmm. um, we always went back to Los Angeles, uh, always. Um, so we always, I think, had a little bit of a schizophrenic um, feeling um, that we, you know, lived one foot in one place, one foot in the other. But for all intents and purposes, you know, we, we, we were living there full time, um, never forgetting that we were what the Vermonters call flatlanders, you know, flatlanders, that we were strangers. Yeah. yeah. So anybody who wasn't born and raised there was considered a flatlander. Is that the gist? Yeah, pretty much. And I think it may even extend to, I don't even know, second or third generation, if you get to call yourself a real Vermonter. Um, <laughs> yeah, that yeah. sounds, that sounds familiar. <laughs> I think it's, uh, it's probably not unique to New England, but Maybe it's just unique to human beings, that certain tribalism. Well, I think it is. And, and that's actually a lot of what the film's about. But I do think there's something particular in New England that, you know, it's, it's a little bit more traditional. It looks, um, you know, there's more maybe emphasis placed on, are you really from here? And that really informed, you know, the film. It was partly why I made it, because I had this, you know, somewhat outsider view of, of a town, um, despite the fact that I lived there for, for a long time, you know, kind of never forgetting that. Um, you know, the, there's a difference of people who really live there multiple generations. When, when you were growing up in Rutland, did you have a sense of the socioeconomic makeup? Like, what did you, you know, I think a lot of people who have never been to Vermont or never been to Rutland, when they hear Vermont, they think, you know, maple syrup and green mountains and skiing and rivers. And that's all very true. It's a beautiful state. And yet, of course, even the most beautiful places on the planet deal with some very real challenges. 
they they do for sure. And and I think kind of the romantic vision is what drove my folks to move there. And then I think, you know, the 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 penny dropped over time that of course life, as you say, it's it's no one place is is all is the same thing. Um I was in second grade, so we had just recently moved there. And I remember very distinctly um, that there was a kid in my class who came from a family that everybody hated. They had a French Canadian last name. Mm -hmm. um, And I think that maybe added to the feeling, you know, that this kid was somehow an outsider. And I remember even the teachers treating this kid and his family with real disdain. And the last day of second grade, we all got our report cards and this kid opened his report card and burst into tears because he'd been held back. Hmm. And I remember so distinctly at that age, I was what, eight years old, thinking, oh, my gosh, this kid just had his life altered forever. Right. And I never got that feeling out of my head ever of what was it? Why in a, such a small community wouldn't they have talked to the parents? Wouldn't they have like tried to do something to prevent this kid from having his life shattered at age eight? Um so, yeah, that was kind of a that may sound very naive, but mm -hmm. it was um, just such a, a distinct moment in my life where I realized, oh, this this little idyllic place that we've moved to where, you know, we live next to the plumber and across the street from the newspaper publisher. And it's like Babar's Land of the Elephants, where there's a little bit of everybody in one neighborhood because we came from a kind of affluent neighborhood in L.A. Um, it, it didn't matter like for that kid. That's so, a lot of what I made the film. And and for the love of Rutland is not your first film. So I'm curious, what was it that drew you to the story of the uh, the plan to have the Syrian refugees resettle in in Rutland? Why the return to Rutland? For you? Well, yeah, I mean, I've been making uh, documentaries and features. I think my first feature was I uh, did in 1998. So mm -hmm. I've you know been making ducks ducks for quite some time. Um, I've lived in California for. You know, I came back to California pretty much right after high school. So I've, I've been here back in California forever. There's something that always stayed with me. And it was actually that story that I just told you about, about the the, the boy from second grade. It just it always stuck in my mind that, um, you know, a community as small as Rutland could still create outsiders, could mm -hmm. still create people who for all intents and purposes are living thousands of miles away, even though they're next door to you. And so it just, it gnawed at me for years and years and years. And um, my dad passed away about eight years ago and I was back, you know, for that horrible event and for the memorial. And I looked around in the town and saw um, a lot of people wearing ankle monitors and, um, evidence of the opioid epidemic that it had mm -hmm. gotten really severe. Right. And it made me think, oh, maybe this is a moment to to kind of look back at this long, lifelong kind of question I've had about what's it like to live in, in a town that's that small and yet still feel marginalized. So I started thinking about doing something about the opioid epidemic. And I was told by everybody, including my mother, who still lives in the little solar farmhouse that we uh, built outside the town. And yeah, if you're in New England, you know, solar is uh, dicey. Um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> 300 days of clouds. <laughs> yeah. And us maybe idealistic Californians. That's what we did. But, um, yeah, my, you know, everyone was like, Nope, 
that's not a good idea because it's too raw. It's too painful. And, and uh, there's too many um, just outside uh, voices really trying to exploit this really painful thing. So probably best not to do that, but it, but it's still, you know, kind of weighed on me. And a couple of years later, when I heard that Chris Lewis, the, the then mayor of the town was going to, you know, start this refugee resettlement program, that seemed like a catalyst mm-hmm. that might be a little bit less painful to people, but would still give us a way in to examine the dynamics in this community. And one of the focal points of the film is a woman named Stacy Griffin. Tell us a little bit about how you came to know Stacy and and how you came to make the decision to, in a way, use her as a use her story and her struggles as a conduit through which to tell kind of almost represent the psyche in a way of the town. Yeah. Well, Stacy um, is, is a remarkable and wonderful uh, woman. I believe at, at this time, she's maybe in her early forties. Mm-hmm. Um, she has been in recovery for a long time. Um, and she grew up in extreme poverty in a cyclo poverty. Um, and um, when I met her was at the very beginning of, of filming, I was filming refugee opponents and proponents, mostly middle-class people as they squared off against each other in things like city council meetings. Mm-hmm. And um, Stacy, I met um, in the little park where that factors into the film quite a bit as a location. Um, she came over as I was filming a research interview with somebody and just, we struck up a conversation and she immediately struck me as absolutely brilliant and warm-hearted and curious um, and so smart, and also someone who, by her appearance and her class, would be labeled a dirtbag mm-hmm. um, in this town. Um, that's the preferred, that's the one of the pejoratives that's used against people who come from extreme poverty and they have substance abuse issues. And she just seemed anything but that. She was so great. Um, and so I asked her, how do you feel about refugee resettlement? She said, I don't know. I don't know mm-hmm. what I think, but I'm open right. and I'd like to learn more. And, it, and, you know, for any documentary filmmaker or journalist, that's the magic word. Sure. If someone says I'm open, I want to learn. Great. I'd like to follow you on that journey. Exactly. Because, you know, her story and, and somebody who has dealt with her, the, str- the struggles that she has dealt with, um, her story could serve really as a weather vane of sorts on either side of this issue. On the one hand, you could see her having a natural inclination to empathize and sympathize with the downtrodden and people who are you know, placed in just very difficult circumstances through decisions that they did not make, right? Mm-hmm. But then exactly. on the other hand, you could also see her being representative of the factions that say, well, wait a minute, why, why? Who's taking care of my problems? Who's you know who's who's going to help me pay my rent? Which we see very vividly in the in the film, and we see literally daily struggles with: Are her kids eating? Is there enough money um, accessible to get through this day, get through this week? And so it's um, uh, it's a really interesting choice uh, around which to you know to sort of build the film. Yeah. And, and I think it's, you know, I've always believed strongly that, um, you know, Jeff Chang, who's a, a great um, scholar of hip hop culture, has has said something about it's important to um, not look what's right at the center of your vision, but to see what's happening on the periphery, hmm. because that's where the most interesting stories usually take place. And I really, really agree with that idea. 
that, you know, so frequently we go with the obvious. It's really easy, actually, to go film people who are um, comfortable sure. um, to having the spotlight, people who are middle class, who feel like, I sure, I deserve this space. I'll, I'll tell you what I feel. Right. Um, and it doesn't matter if they're on the left or the right. They take that space. Um, it's, I think, a different prospect to, you know, encourage someone who's been told all their life, we don't care what you think. Um, to take to take some space and to find out that that person may become the moral center of of your entire endeavor. Um, and I, I did, you know, think, of course, you know, um, Stacy and, and folks in her, um, you know, generally in her community or her profile, of course, are the ones being used, particularly, I think, by the refugee opponents and people who are nativists and you know, those who say that whole thing of, well, we can't even take care of our own. Why would we bring in these people? And then I say, great, tell me what you're doing to take care of our own. Right. And there's mm -hmm. often dead silence. You had talked about the difficulties that outsiders often face in in small towns where, you know, you've got generations of uh, residents who have been there and might look askance at uh, newcomers. What happens when those newcomers um, arrive with cameras? What, oh. how, how do you ingratiate yourself and, you know, kind of win over uh, the voices from multiple sides of this issue, which you do, you know, very successfully. Um, and, and I think that uh, I don't think that there's any voice watching this film that was depicted in the film that would come away feeling like, you know, their side was not um, uh, was not aired. Good, good, because I wanted even people with whom I disagree, I wanted to show them the basic respect mm -hmm. of, of not ridiculing them. Um, I think you might glean that there's people with whom I disagree, but I've tried to do it in a way that's not um, snide or, um, you know, the kind of rhetoric that sure. we're now engaging in where we're just demonizing each other. You know, honestly, Michael, because my mom still lives in, in that community outside of Rutland, my sister also moved back there from New York City a few years ago. Um, I still have family there. And I've, of course, gone back and forth for the last 30, I guess, 40 years since I've, I've been back in, in California. Um, a lot of people knew my dad, mm -hmm. um, know my mom. You know, they're very active in the community. So I knew a lot of folks there or it's such a small community that you know, the mayor's uh, son plays hockey with my nephew and his wife and my mom, you know, volunteer together at the library, you know, things like that. Sure. Even Stacy, who I, I hadn't met, turns out her teacher um, at Vermont Adult Education, where, where Stacy got her her um, her degree, her teacher was my mom's very good friend. Oh, wow. um, yeah. So, you know, almost everybody knows each other. So that also means that you have to really mind your P's and Q's. Sure. And um, I think that's partly why, um, you know, the film turned out the way it did, because I tried to make it in an accountable way. You know, I also worked very closely with with a local journalist named Jim Sabatasso, who is a print journalist and who had been writing really, really excellent articles for the uh, Rutland Herald newspaper about the influx of outside voices in the refugee debate. And he was already pinpointing immediately, much quicker than I was in 2016, that this, in, this heightened anti-refugee rhetoric that was mostly surfacing on Facebook was somehow coming from outside sources. Yeah. Um, and he was very prescient. So I recognized his last name because I went to elementary school with his big brother and <laughs> reached out to him. I called my mom and said, Hey, do you know this guy, Jim? She said, Oh yeah, I see him every Friday at the cafe. So, you know, I reach out to Jim and say, Hey, print journalist, do you want to make a movie? 
There you go. Uh, threw a camera yeah. in his hand and the rest is history. So, so I also had Jim to really keep me in check since I hadn't lived there in a long time. You know, there were times I think I was misinterpreting things I was seeing. Um, sure. So it was important to have him there. So there are two large external forces that your that your film kind of you know touches upon. Uh, you know, one is kind of the deindustrialization um, of of whatever uh, industry at one time powered uh, mm-hmm. much of Rutland, yep. and then the other is the opioid epidemic. And what's interesting, I always think when um, those twin factors exist and you know your story can be multiplied unfortunately by you know factors of 50 uh, you know around the country the deindustrialization of rural towns doesn't just happen it's a series of decisions and choices that are made that very often do not filter down to the to mm-hmm. those people who um not only are affected by it, but become politically radicalized by mm-hmm, it, mm-hmm, right? Yes. And it's the, it was the, it was the exact same thing with the opioid uh, crisis, where you know essentially some of these most v- vulnerable populations acted as almost like beta tests mm-hmm. in terms of the marketing of yeah. of these drugs. Um, and so I'm curious in your conversations with. Let, let's talk about the people who were not proponents of welcoming the Syrian refugees. Did you get a sense of where they trace their financial challenges to? So, the, so I would say that the, the people who were opponents of the of the resettlement, those who were very vocal, mm-hmm. and I think had access to information, um, and nonetheless w- remained staunchly opposed to to refugee resettlement. Mm-hmm. I, Sadly, um, I, I think it did come down to just a, 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 a fear or a reluctance of, of the other. I think there was very significant Islamophobia at work. And these were people who were middle class. These were people who were not going to be threatened by losing a job, right. uh, which is a canard anyway. You don't, you know, you don't lose your job to, to an immigrant or a refugee particularly in, in the current job market um, or the one even five years ago. Um, so these were folks who, who actually had economic power personally mm-hmm. um, and still would make that argument. Oh no, we can't afford it. We can't afford it. I mean, somebody in the film says something really awful where she says, what are we going to do? Have these, you know, I'm sorry about the drowning kids in the river, but are they going to come here and be heroin addicts? Right. I mean, that's a, that has nothing to do with money. Yep. Right. Um, that has everything to do with with bias. And I really I mean, one reason, Michael, that I, I felt very strongly as I was continuing to make the film and we saw what happened with the 2016 election was was to challenge the idea that it was economic anxiety that ushered in, you know, the, the last um, administration um, with their policies um, that were so much about, um, you know, xenophobia sure. um, that that, you know, the, and the data bore this out. As we saw in the years after the, the the election, it wasn't poor people who or or working class people who who voted that in. It was actually people with money. And the whole economic anxiety breeds racism argument, I think, is BS. I mean, there's probably something to it, but it's manipulated. So, yeah, I kept thinking when I was watching your film, I kept thinking of I'm sure you're familiar with uh, Hillbilly Elegy. Oh yes, <laughs> uh, but, but 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 parallel to that, the um, the metamorphosis of the author yeah. of Hillbilly Elegy, mm-hmm. you know, Mr. Vance, mm-hmm. uh, 
who's now running, I think, for the Senate. That's right. In Ohio. Yeah. Um, w- you know, which which is kind of a fascinating topic in and of mm-hmm. itself. But one woman in your film, I think, really touched upon uh, some of the um, motivators f- for some of the contingents when she's when she talked about mourning what was lost. Yes. 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 And that's that's a, a, a phenomenal person who who in the film is, is a sort of bridge. Her name is uh, Pastor Hannah Sotak. Mm-hmm. Um, and she at the time we were filming was the was the um, reverend or the pastor at the Methodist Church in the town. And, and you meet her at the beginning of the film um, doing street outreach to homeless people mm-hmm. um, who actually do live in rural New England. Um, something that I wasn't aware of, actually, that there are people living you know, out in the elements, even in wintertime. Um, so so Hannah, at, at a later point in the film, I think really synthesizes beautifully that there's an emotional component to people feeling nostalgic and feeling like they're mourning something that's lost. However, I think what you might also say is you're mourning something that is a little bit of your invention. It's the same, let's go back to the good old days, but the good old days for whom? Sure. And I, I think she was kind of, you know, so very graciously picking up on this feeling that people have of, hey, the world is changing around me. At the same time, yeah, you had it good back in the day, but did everybody else have it as good as you did? Sure. Yeah, right. Exactly. And also that back in the day, um, the the economics of what allowed, uh, you know, a, a middle class existence back in the day is very different. <laughs> It, it is. And, yes. And I and I think, you know, that's where you get into the work of, of um, you know, Heather McGee, for example, who's written a, a book that some of us about how racism costs all of us. And she, you know, I think really lays it out that um, the consciousness or the, the, the dismantling of the American industrial um, mm-hmm. sector, for example, or the, you know, the, the death of or the diminishment of, of labor unions, um, you know, conscious things that have been done to change our economy have hurt everybody. And then you can keep one group really angry at another group. And that takes the onus off of the people that have made the decisions. And I really feel like you see that at work in, in the film. Why would you be angry at Stacy? Why, why would you have any contempt for this woman who through no fault of her own, as you learn in the film is born to somebody who actually has a pretty severe learning disability and had to raise three children with that issue. Um, and then, you know, I, I didn't even get into, we, I mean, we, we, we out of just respect for Stacy left a lot of things out that, you know, one might imagine some pretty rough things have happened to her. And yet here is this person who's resilient, who wants to give to her community and who ultimately finds the path, which is, I do have something in common with Syrian refugees. I, I, we can do both. We can take care of people who are, who are trapped in opioid addiction and, and poverty. And we can also welcome people who've had their lives destroyed by war. I mean, we're certainly seeing that now with the Ukraine situation. Why couldn't we do it for the Syrians? And in the back to the time frame of the film, which which, of course, was was 2016. And then there were all the, um, you know, the proclamations and decisions made regarding immigration and, and taking in or not taking in of refugees that were administered by the Trump administration. So. At the end of the day, how many refugees ended up coming to Rutland? Do you know? I do. Three families. Okay. Um, and I believe um, 
uh, maybe 10 people total, if I'm not mistaken, if I'm doing my math right about the amount of children, um, there have been a, a kid or two born since then. And uh, the families have, have um, done wonderfully in the town. Um, it, you know, none of the things that people imagined came to pass, sure. you know, the, the terrible things that people, I mean, these ridiculous, oh, ISIS is coming to, I mean, just this horrible stuff that people were saying, but also on the other side of, of folks who wanted the refugees to come imagining that it was going to magically transform the town. That didn't happen either. It's sure. just that, you know, the town keeps going the way it is. And these three families, fortunately, are doing very well. Um, the, Rutland is actually now resettling Afghan refugees. Okay. And, and fortunately, that has not drawn controversy. Um, and I think all is proceeding um, well, Think you know, thankfully. Um, and so I'm, I'm very happy for the town and certainly anyone who's able to um, find a home there. And do you have any sense of um, how the town is faring um, uh, along the lines of dealing with the the issues of um, uh, drug addiction? There's there's a scene in the movie that you capture just a searing headline in the local paper that says one day, one town, 11 overdoses, which, you know, in a big city probably doesn't sound like a lot, but for a small town. Um, that, that, that's quite a bit, uh, but you know, since, since the time you wrapped up your film, there has been a, there's been a lot of settlements in terms of uh, drug companies that mm-hmm. are, you know, paying mm-hmm. settlements. I have no idea if, and when that's going to trickle down to actual treatment. You often hear that that's, you know, we're not going to admit having done anything wrong, yeah. but we're going to pay these tens of millions of dollars to, uh, uh, drug rehabilitation and treatment centers. Um, so yeah, do you have a sense of how Rutland is faring uh, relative to how it was when you were shooting? I wish I had a better sense. You know, obviously, you know, the pandemic, um, we went into lockdown literally four days after I finished the film. Oh, wow. um, so, you know, that's prevented me from from visit. I was able to visit for a minute um when things were a little better last summer, but I, I didn't get a good sense of what was happening in the town. Stacy has told me that she thought the pandemic was was just absolutely brutal on people in recovery because um, being in lockdown means you can't go to group. Right. It's harder to to you know kind of keep your community going. And obviously the level of despair and alienation that we all felt, I think, during during the worst days of the pandemic, I think was especially hard for people, mm-hmm. you know, working to maintain their sobriety. Um, so she, she related to me that there were, there was an upsurge in, in overdose deaths and, um, you know, not a good situation. Um, I don't know. And I hope very much now that hopefully the worst of the pandemic is passing, you know, that people are going to be able to get back and get more, more treatment. Um, and that will be, I think something probably communities again, all over the country are going to need to really look at and, and try to take care of folks who, who are you know suffering from this disease? And uh, you know another factor that was hugely impacted by the pandemic was you had a lot of um, urban dwellers who were seeking refuge in places like Vermont and maybe even Rutland. Do you do you have any idea whether the sort of the socioeconomic profile of Rutland um, has improved at all? I don't think it has that much. Um, I'm, I think there's probably been some improvement. Um, mm-hmm. You know, unfortunately, poor Rutland has a, you know, 
kind of a bad reputation. And, you know, Chris at the beginning of the film says people call it a crap hole. And, you know, that was obviously (laughs) something I wanted to play off with the film to show that even if it's a town that, you know, manifestly has been through some hard times, it doesn't make it that. And, and, and in a certain sense, Stacy, you know, you had said she represents the psyche of the town. And that's also a reason I wanted to really focus on her because she's somebody who's looked down on and yet, when you really get to know her, she has so much to give. Um, so I think Rutland has a reputational, you know, thing that it works against. Um, and then, uh, you know, there's some surrounding towns that are much more affluent that I think have been more successful probably in, in drawing um, flatlanders. I know when we moved there, a lot of other families similar to my family had moved there. Um, you know, idealistic people, most of them Unitarians, um, you know, who left other religions, as was the case with my dad, who was a Catholic, who then became Unitarian. And, you know, um, by the 80s, everyone was gone. Hmm. And we were the only ones who stayed. Everybody else went back to the city. Um, so um, I, I don't know if there's been a, a, a similar kind of wave um, yeah. now. So you mentioned the the mayor. Now, when the film begins, the mayor is Chris. Is it Luras? L- Loris. Loris. Okay, sure. Yeah. And um, he's up for re-election in sixteen. Uh, and it's so it's so fascinating. The you know Tip O'Neill had that had that expression that all politics is local. Mm-hmm. And Lord, does that really yeah. come through in your <laughs> film? You know, and um, you know, no spoilers here, but uh, the the election doesn't really turn out mm-hmm. to his to his advantage. Um, a couple of questions here. Do you know what he's what he's doing now? And do you know how the 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 uh, the man who won the mm-hmm. mayoral mayoral election uh, in Rutland that year, how he's faring? Well, um, with regard to the first thing, the current mayor, Dave Valer, um, who I think is also somehow Chris's in-law. Um, <laughs> of course. Of course. I wouldn't expect um, anything less. <laughs> exactly. Um, I think Dave is actually doing quite well. Um, he's been um, uh, much more supportive of, of resettlement, as far as I understand, than he was the first time around. And I think people involved in that effort feel that's going very well, which mm-hmm. is, again, wonderful. Um, I, I should say, Chris, after we finished the film, had a had a terrible thing happen to him and his family. And we, we didn't refer to it in the film at all. Of course, it wasn't within the time frame of what we were filming. Um, but in, I believe it was late 2019, um, his, his um, son and his nephew both died oh, in God. a shooting incident that also had to do with opioids and mental health issues. Oh, and it was terrible. just a horrible situation, horrible situation. Um, so, you know, what was, what was good, I suppose, if there's anything that can be said, that's good. I, it, it's not commensurate at all with what happened, but but the town did turn out to really support him. And I think even people who hadn't voted for him or who had beef with him about resettlement and other issues, I think, you know, showed their best mm-hmm. at that time. Um, so I just, you know, it's heartbreaking what happened uh, to his family. Um, so he's not in public life anymore, as far as I understand. Um, I'm not exactly sure um, what he's doing now. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I think he put his all into into that community and and I think is an example of of someone who, like everyone in in the film, actually, regardless of their ideological stance, really loves their town. I mean, that's why I named it 
for the love of Rutland, both it connotes a little exasperation. Like when you hit your toe, you might go oh, for the love of Pete. So there's a little <laughs> built in exasperation, but I also feel like everyone there has the sense of this is our home. It's a nothing town. There's sure. a million towns like it everywhere, but when it's well, your town, you care about it. Well, absolutely. Because you know, that reinforces the love part of your title because yeah. you know, Part of loving something or someone is you also, you know, you love them in spite of the imperfection exactly. and, and the challenges. Exactly. And and I came to, you know, I, I didn't want to live there. I didn't want to leave California. I mean, I was young, but I I actually hated the fact that we left our entire family yeah. was back in L.A. Um, and I didn't like the weather. I didn't like the fact that there was no pool in the backyard <laughs> like the fact that we didn't have an avocado tree you know like all these things that we had when i was a but what about all that maple syrup kid. oh maple syrup yeah maple syrup's the, <laughs> the one yeah my dad developed the maple margarita which is oh, wow. really disgusting but that was his thing <laughs> um, you know so i, I didn't want to be there i i left you know almost as soon as i i could um but i knew my whole life as an adult that, that also there are wonderful beautiful things that i learned living in a community like that and and I needed to kind of bring it back together. And after my dad died, I, I really needed to actually process why he loved that town so much and, sure. and, and search in a certain sense for, for why that ended up being a place that he and my mother decided to stay despite being, you know, from a different place. Um, and I think, so that's the touchy feeling part of why I did it, but it was really, I often was trying to look at the town through his eyes. Well, you certainly succeeded in making a uh, very thought-provoking, uh, eye-opening, um, and and really compassionate film. Uh, it again, it's called "For the Love of Rutland," and it's currently available through numerous streaming services, uh, particularly through the World Channel dot uh, org, which is carried by um, I, I imagine almost every. Uh, you know, cable provider. Uh, so we will make sure that the, in the program notes for this episode of the podcast, uh, we put the information around where people can find find the film. And Jennifer, my Torin Taylor, I thank you very much for joining me. I appreciate your time and thank you for sharing this film. Thank you, Michael. It's been a pleasure. All right. Thanks. Thanks.